This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the NBN. You're listening to a special podcast we're doing in conjunction with our friends at Princeton University Press. We call it the Princeton University Press Ideas Podcast. In the podcast, we'll be publishing two interviews with Princeton authors every month. If you're interested in following along, you can subscribe to the Princeton University Press Ideas podcast on the NBN or on your favorite podcast app. The podcast includes not only interviews in the series, but all the interviews we've ever done with Princeton authors, hundreds of them. We hope you enjoy this series, and we hope you visit our friends at Princeton University Press on the web. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe, and I'd like to welcome you to the inaugural episode of the Princeton University Press Ideas podcast. Today, we're very lucky to have Ismail White and Cheryl Ladd on the show, and we'll be talking about their terrific book, Steadfast Democrats, How Social Forces Shape Black Political Behavior. So Dr. White and Dr. Laird, I'd like to welcome you to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. Um, Dr. White, could you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself? Oh, uh, my name is Ishmael White. I'm a professor of politics and public affairs at uh, Princeton University. Dr. Laird? Yes, uh, I am Cheryl Laird. I'm an assistant professor of government and legal studies at Bowdoin College. Well, thank you both very much. Now, as I said in the pre-interview, I was going to ask this rather pointed question. And um, Dr. Baird, you can go first because we're taking turns. Why did you write this book? So it's interesting. Um, I think a lot of the motivation that stemmed from this book is trying to understand uh, a political phenomenon that we've all been observing, which is this block voting amongst African Americans and recognizing that uh, some of our traditional measures that we've used in political science to try to understand it actually don't provide the explanation that we are expecting it to provide. And so we were left with a puzzle, which is we really don't know how this partisanship is maintained. Um, We understand that it is fairly cohesive, but we don't know what is doing that work. Like what is the mechanism at play? Uh, And so I think that that was a lot of what drove Ishmael and I towards this project was trying to answer what seemed to be an unanswered question. Dr. White, do you have anything to add? Uh, no. Uh, well, yeah, maybe. Uh, <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, yeah, we really wanted to try to understand what was going on with uh, African-American uh, partisanship and the, the degree, as Cheryl said, the degree of kind of homogeneity, uh, particularly within the Black support for the Democratic Party. We, we, and it, it for us... And for many scholars interested in studying the Black experience, this was a real puzzle. And there were lots of attempts, previous attempts, to sort of answer this question. And we just really weren't satisfied with those. And, and many, of them, many of them added something to what we knew uh, about African-American political homogeneity. But they just, they just didn't quite... Uh, answer the question we thought. And and that's what sort of motivated us to to do this. Yeah, well, so just to establish the facts here, and I get these facts out of your terrific book, Steadfast Democrats, again, is, and a little Googling, there are 42 million African Americans in the United States. And among uh, the adult population that's been surveyed, fully 85% of them affiliate themselves with the Democratic Party. America is very divided, but at least in terms of party affiliation, African Americans are not. So that is a pretty astounding thing, and, and it does cry out for explanation. 
Um, I I also, I I wanted to kind of start historically. I'm a historian and I'll begin with kind of an anecdote. I remember I was talking to Peter Gomes. Have you ever heard of Peter Gomes? He was a, he was a reverend at Harvard University. He was the reverend of uh, Memorial Church. And this was about 2000. And I was talking to him one day and he explained to me, and this is the words, these are the words he used. He said, I'll tell you about the first time I did not vote for the party of Lincoln. He's an African American guy. <laughs> <laughs> That's what he called it, the party of Lincoln. Mm-hmm. Lincoln, yeah. the liberator. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So how is how just historically in general terms, how is it the case that the Democratic Party has uh, uh, come to uh, come to be the predominant party of African Americans in the United States? Um it's a it's a it's a complex story, uh, and uh, as you mentioned, you know, it, 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 when African Americans first got the right to vote, I should say African American men, just following the uh, Civil War, they, they it was it was almost the inverse of what we see today, right? They are all supported the Republican Party throughout the party, South. the party of Lincoln, a party of Lincoln. Exactly. Right. <laughs> the party of Lincoln. And, um, and they did for many years after the, the civil war until the Southern Democrats took that right away from African-Americans in the South. Right. And, and the federal government decided, you know, uh, to not protect that those rights and thus disenfranchise the vast majority of African Americans in this country. So for a while, African Americans were sort of left out of electoral politics. And as as you know, as as we moved into the 20th century, you know, we began to see African Americans, you know, it, this is on top of what this sort of Jim Crow restrictions on on both voting and the sort of everyday social lives of of black americans in the south many black americans left the south and and uh moved to the north and there there began this sort of complicated sort of politics of uh partisan politics of trying to get african-american support between northern republicans and northern democrats and many of the Northern Democrats begin to, many of the uh, Blacks in the North, in the North begin to support uh, Democrats, particularly in, in local elections. And that sort of began the shift. But the real change became, came when the Democratic Party decided it was going to uh, support. And well, I, I mean, there's some of some of this is the sort of New Deal politics of Roosevelt, too, that helped to shift African-Americans. But it ultimately the change came when African American when the Democrats decided they were going to support the the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act in the 1960s, and and that sort of solidified African American support for the Democratic Party. And and what's important there is that it integrated, you know, it integrated Black Americans into this kind of electoral politics, and Black Black Americans began running for office. Right. As Democrats. And, and that began that is what sort of began to tie the party to uh, black Americans to the Democratic Party, because most of the black people running for office, almost nearly all of them were running as, as Democrats. Mm-hmm. Dr. Laird, do you have something to add to that? No, I think um, Ishmael covers a lot of that history um, and and really thinking about the importance of African-Americans responding to the policy positions and the politics of the particular time periods um, that he laid out uh, and that in, in the civil rights movement, that legislation that gets decided on then is really key. And, and I think we see it as the consolidation moment of when we see that uh, homogeneity of the partisanship really solidify around the Democratic Party. And it is something that is pro-partisan, right? So it is going with the party that is more embracing of the interest, the concerns, and even allowing for a seat at the table for African-Americans who have long found themselves denied that access within the political space. Um, and they're also in a constraint space with that. You know, they are dealing with a two-party system and trying to navigate the best way to leverage their voice as a minority group 
within that. And so this consolidation is one that is strategic um, in order to try to ensure that they aren't somehow left behind in those discussions. Yeah, that's that's very well said. You have a very nice graph, or is it a chart, uh, in the book that shows the uptick in support for Democrats starting essentially with the civil rights movement in, in the 60s. And it is precipitous. I mean, it, the, the Democratic Party did a great job of appealing to African-Americans in that time. And you begin to get numbers that are close to what we see today, which I said is 85%. Um, so you offer an interesting explanation. I, I, I found it very compelling, actually. And you call it racialized social constraint, racialized social constraint to explain the affiliation behavior, if I can put it that way, of African-Americans. Um, Dr. Laird, can you begin this time by telling us what racialized social constraint is? Yeah. So it is um, a lot, uh, it is theoretically the concept that we put forward in the book here, where we're trying to argue that the maintenance of partisanship by African-Americans uh, has a lot to do not only with some sort of individual decision-making, but that is actually a social dynamic that is at play, right? So there is a process of uh, a social interaction that is going on that helps to maintain it amongst uh, amongst Black populations, right? And that, that part of that is that basically there is a norm that has developed over time that has basically tied together Black identity and partisanship to some degree basically to be black is to be Democrat. Um, and that understanding of that norm is based in a long collective history of the group mobilizing together in efforts to try to achieve group interest, right? But this norm with partisanship and that consolidation around the Democratic Party um, is a clearly understood norm. And we argue that those who potentially may have rationale or reasons for why they may defect from that understanding of that norm and, and even the behavior that goes along with that are individuals who will feel constraint in doing so because of their social interactions with other African-Americans. Um, and that a lot of that is going to be able to happen because not only are they concerned about those social interactions, but African-Americans are disproportionately likely to be having daily interactions um, that are going to be homogeneous in terms of race. So the communities and spaces and places where they're engaging in their political decision-making are predominantly Black. And so we argue that that is a lot of the work that goes on, that there are reasons we can come up with uh, that we can think of where African-Americans could think that it may behoove them to do something else and, and not to go with the Democratic Party, um, but that the social constraint within the group about this norm and the enforcement of the norm through these sanctions that we talk about in the book or even rewards for those who are in stronger compliance with it, um, maintain this collective behavior over time and that it is most constraining for people who are like black conservatives who would probably be the most likely um, to come up with reasons for why they might defect from the norm. Uh, Dr. White, do you have something to add to that? Oh, no. I mean, Cheryl's explanation was excellent. Uh, the only thing I would add is, is that what's important about this norm and the reason it saw that it was adopted, as I mentioned, this this idea that blacks are Democrats developed just just after the civil rights movement, and and so did this norm in part because or this particular version of the norm, and it developed in part because it is a means of empowering the group. So as a as a minority group in a majority rule nation, right? African Americans have an incentive to be unified, right, mm -hmm. in their politics. And it is it is it is a perpetual challenge to figure out how to maintain this unity, right? Because that unity is what is empowering, right? And this is where the norm sort of uh, uh, developed from. Mm -hmm. And so if I could radically simplify, and I do want to say I'm radically simplifying your explanation, African-Americans affiliate with the Democratic Party because other African-Americans expect them to. And as Dr. White just said, they know that this helps with group solidarity, which helps all African-Americans. Would that be a fair characterization? 
Yes, but I would add one more thing, right? It 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 gives them a a certain amount of power, right? In 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 partisan politics, right? Because mm-hmm. and as and you can see this in in the primary season this year, right? With uh, with Joe Biden, right? African Americans become this key constituency that you can rely on as Democrat to support the Democratic Party, right? And their ability to sort of give or withhold support for a candidate grants them a great deal of power. I mean, for example, I mean, we're talking, we were talking about reparations a few months ago, right? Mm-hmm. One could never have imagined that we would be talking about something like that, but it's the reason we were talking about it was because of the electoral strength that African-Americans have through their ability to maintain unity within mm-hmm. the, the group. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me ask a follow-up question, and, and this is part of the book that I really, really appreciated and enjoyed. Uh, how do you test this proposition that it is racialized social constraint that actually is moving African Americans to affiliate with the Democratic Party? I mean, it's one thing to say it, but what, what, under what conditions can we isolate variables and the other things that political scientists like to do that show that it is, in fact, the expectation of other African-Americans that is doing this. Yeah. So one of the ways that we had to first try to even accomplish uh, testing our framework, right, was uh, to think about one, well, how do we even prove that there's a norm, right? Because you kind of have to establish that there's the expectation. Right. Um, and so we spend a lot of time first doing analysis to show the long-term trends on African-American political behavior and that their partisan loyalty is above average, uh, what high for what we see, right? It's fairly cohesive in the 80, 90% area of people voting for the Democratic Party. We also see exit poll data from various elections, and we can see that consistently we see high levels of support in a very cohesive and homogeneous way amongst Black people. Um, And then we started to think about as well, you know, can we try to see responses from people where they seem to provide indication that there is an understanding from friends and family members who, if you're African-American, more likely those individuals are going to be Black, uh, that they have an understanding of what it means to get behind certain candidates in the election, and that this is some sort of, of understanding and expectation that if you were to somehow step away from um, supporting the Democratic candidate for president, how that would be seen by those individuals. Would they be supportive or not supportive of you, right? So we started some of that there and really really thinking about, you know, can we point to an idea that this norm and expectation is clear? And can we see evidence of people basically calling out individuals, even in certain cases, historically, for seeming to defect from expectations of the group? And and we go through a historical analysis of various points in history where we can see that even prior to the democratic norm. Um, So collective behavior is a long history within the Black community. Thereafter, we had to get really into the experimentation and the empiricism of it, right? Like, so how can we empirically show that? And one of the ways that was advantageous for this was using something like race of interviewer effects, because in the field, it has long been known that the race of an interviewer does have an effect on responses from individuals when they're participating in surveys, um, and that this would be an opportunity for us to at least do a conservative test of our theory to see if the presence of a person um, who is a member of the Black community, right, so an in-group member interviewing a Black individual or somebody who's not Black, have an impact on something like reported partisanship, right? Because the idea is that the norm is so entrenched and internalized for African Americans that even being in front of another Black person that you may not even know could be enough to alter your partisanship reporting, right? That this would be, an, in our mind, an indication that there is something that is going on with the social component, right? That there is something between the interaction of you as the participant and the person who is now interviewing you, and that is impacting your responses. Um, and so that was key because I think prior to that, outside of the race of the interviewer effect research, right, we often think of political participation and partisanship as an individual-based 
type of behavior. Uh, and, and in this case, partisanship then shouldn't move at all. Like we shouldn't see any variation happening there because if I'm an individual reporting my partisanship, it shouldn't matter who's asking me about it. But in fact, we find that and we were able to then look further into the details of that with larger data sets, even on telephone surveys where you're not even face to face, but people make associations with voice and tone to race. Um, and even there we see some conservative test of our of these effects. And, and then beyond that, we used experimentation and, and Ishmael can probably talk a bit more detail about the experimental design, but I mean, we really tried to operationalize social pressure, right? And constraint on behavior and what that does to an individual's um, partisanship reporting and even their decision-making when set in a position to have to make a decision between the Republican candidate and the Democratic candidate. Yeah, Dr. White, could you talk a little bit more about the experimental design and the experiments? Uh, sure. Um, so to sort of test this idea of racialized social constraint, uh, it, it, it's difficult to sort of just observe it in the real world and say this is the that it's somehow causal of black democratic partisanship so to get around that challenge we designed a series of experiments that we thought would uh, help us to understand how this social pressure particularly from other in-group members might be able to constrain the behavior, the political behavior of African-Americans. So in 2012, uh, Cheryl and I embarked on a, a several weeks of, uh, of in the field uh, ex lab experiments uh, is, is how we, is how we lab in the field experiments, I guess is how we call it in political science. And what we did was we designed a series of experiments that would basically pit an individual's self-interest with this understood expectation of political behavior and that of black political behavior and that is uh, supporting the democratic party and its candidates and so we in the first in the first series of experiments which we did at um a historically black college um what we did was we 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 decided we would offer you know, in terms of trying to get at a kind of individual's self-interest, we decided, well, what we want to do is figure out first a baseline of support among Black Americans in terms of trying to identify this, this sort of norm of political behavior. So what we did was we, we, uh, we went to a historically Black college in Baton Rouge and um, we interviewed uh almost 200 uh, African-American students there. And, would, and, and the experiment in terms of its construction was fairly simple. Uh, in one condition, we asked African, we told African-American students that we were, uh, we, had we were researchers from a large Midwestern university and we received a grant uh, to uh, give young people the opportunity to participate in politics. And with this grant, we told them, and, and this part was, dis, was using a bit of deception, that, uh, that we were going to uh, allow them, we were going to give them $100 that they could donate to either of the, uh, the candidates. And all they had to do was just tell us which candidate they wanted that money contributed to, okay? And so uh, within that condition, as you might expect, the vast majority of African-American re respondents contributed, this because this was 2012, contributed all the money to Barack Obama, right? Mm -hmm. in, in that condition, they couldn't keep any of the money. They just had to contribute it one way or the other, okay, to Romney or Obama. In the uh, control, in the next condition, which we call the incentive condition, we told them that the um, the organization might offer them an incentive to contribute to one candidate or the other. Now, to be clear, they weren't we weren't telling them they were contributing to candidates 
per se, it was organizations that would support the candidates. Yeah, I understand. Right? Yep. And so what we did was we, we told them that the organiz- that that this voter turnout organization might give them a an incentive. In the in this case it was ten dollars to uh, $1 for every $10 they contributed to that candidate uh, for either Romney or Obama, and that it was going to be randomly determined. Uh, And in fact, it was not randomly determined. Everyone was offered an incentive to contribute to the Romney campaign. Uh, So uh, in that condition, you know, we saw significant drop off in support for Obama. Right. And so the where in the control condition, about ninety dollars on average was contributed to the Obama campaign. Once we offered this one dollar for every ten dollars you contributed to this particular candidate incentive, we saw a decrease up down to about sixty dollars, sixty something dollars in contributions to Obama in the face of these incentives. Right. So what that condition demonstrated was that clearly, you know, the 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 commitment to the Democratic Party, at least in, in this case, could be outweighed by some sort of personal self-interest. Right. Yeah. And so we so in order to demonstrate our argument, this racialized social constraint and how it would have this effect of constraining the potential for defection from the Democratic Party. Uh, We then uh, told the respondents in the next set of conditions, which was the next, I'm sorry, the next condition, which was identical to the incentive condition. We just told them that all the contributions and would be reported in the university newspaper along with the individual's <laughs> names. Okay. Along with the individual's names. I, I see where you're going here, but yes. go ahead. And once we were able, once we told them that they were going to be essentially outed for their contributions to the uh, Romney campaign, we saw a, basically a return to the norm of contributing to Obama, even in the face of this, this, this sort of meaningful incentive for these students, right? You know, it's $10, right? You could go buy something with that, right? And uh, so we saw a return once we, once we, once we presented them with this, this, uh, this, this, way of sort of outing their behavior, it returned to this sort of norm of about $90 for Obama. That's very, it's, it's very clever. I also was sort of blown away by the fact that the, that the race or identity of the interviewer or the, the person gathering the data yeah. really changes the result. And it's kind of intuitive if you think about it. That's right. But, but the, the strength of the effect was, was pretty remarkable to me. Um, yeah. Um, so I wanted to I wanted to touch on something because it's a little bit counterintuitive in the sense that you know um, America has experienced a, a, a great growth in inequality. We know that um, it is also the case that since the 1960s, Americans have generally gotten more uh, prosperous, and this has of course been true in the African American community as well. There are a lot of wealthy African Americans now, just as the, there are a lot of wealthy white Americans, and you might think that um, they would defect. Because for whatever reason, I don't know whether this is true or not, people associate gathering wealth and having higher income with um, the Republican Party. Uh, But you don't see that in the data. Is that correct? That is correct. Um, And I think that's a large part of even some of the motivations around some of the other works that have come out that were trying to explain some of the phenomenon we are are seeing, right? So this, we think of, uh, for instance, Michael Dawson's book, Behind the Mule, um, I think a lot of the motivation behind that book and, and what has been seen as kind of the major canonical texts about Black political behavior uh, with this concept of linked fate, right? And this belief that what African-Americans uh, think is, imp- have and whatever has happening to the group has an influence on their own individual lives. And the motivation there, right, is that as more Black people are gaining education in the post-civil rights period, um, we would expect based on our theories and political science on, you know, what economic diversity does, uh, that we would see changes then in people's political behavior. 
matter? And why do we see affluent Blacks or more educated Blacks uh, support the Democratic Party? Um, and what we find, again, is that linked fate um, doesn't necessarily predict that partisanship, but we do see that this social constraint does a lot of work um, for individuals who have reasons and and rationale that could come from, for instance, economic gains um, that would say to them that potentially they wouldn't support the Democratic Party. Now, they could have reasons for why they would, obviously, but if they were people who were potentially on the edge of that or, or considering doing otherwise, right, that the social constraint actually serves as a way for even African-Americans who have not reached that economic space Mm -hmm. um, and want to continue to make sure that that collective behavior continues and support for the group um, can hold these elites accountable um, for potential uh, defection by making it clear that it is not accepted if you decided to step away from what is understood as this group norm of behavior. Um, So it it is an interesting thing because it, it is quite counterintuitive to a lot of the literature and political science, but I think a lot of that literature is focusing on how people are behaving under a notion of an individualized decision-making, where African-Americans are much more likely to be socialized and understanding the political world through a viewpoint that is more Mm group-centered. Dr. White, anything to add there? No, no, I think Cheryl captured that pretty well. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I I wanted to offer another anecdote because this book does a lot to explain things that I've seen that I I didn't understand. So I, I know someone is a friend of mine. Uh, I've known him for many, many years, and he is the pastor of an AME church. Mm-hmm. This guy's very conservative. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he is mm-hmm. a serious Christian. I mean, serious. Uh, he's a Democrat. Um, and one of the things you find in the data, if I'm not incorrect, is that you see people espousing positions that are not completely aligned with the Democratic Party but they still maintain their allegiance to the Democratic Party. So you see this kind of broadening of opinions, really, within the Democratic context. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I think originally, you know, this was an observation that was, you know, that it, that political scientists to who study African-Americans have been uh, grappling with for a while, right? Uh, particularly around the black church, right? And that the, you know, they were all these, you know, the, the black church had this rather sort of conservative position on lots of issues, yet everyone was Democrat. In fact, people who attended black churches were actually, black Americans who attended black churches were actually more likely to be Democrats than those who didn't. <laughs> really? Yeah. Wow. And, and and so people were like, well, why is this? Why is this? And so a lot of the researchers were, you know, we were all kind of reaching for explanations. And, you know, the explanations always boil down to something like, well, it's race, of course, you know, but but for us, that wasn't a very satisfying explanation because, you know, what does it mean to be race, right? Uh, you know, and conservatives believe in race, many conservative black people, and there's a, a real conservative tradition within the black community around the idea of race, you know, beginning with Booker T. Washington, right? And I mean, even further back than that. Um, and so we weren't satisfied with, well, of course, it's it's race that's driving and the Democrats position on race that's driving their support for the Democratic Party. And so we wanted to try to understand uh, to create a, a theory that would both uh, capture, explain that and offer a, a sort of more general understanding of the sort of social dynamics and political dynamics that that have been t- that we've been observing within the black community for you know particularly over the last 20 or so years and uh, the racialized social constraint argument helped us do that because what it does is it centers you know the segregation, and the degree, the, the idea that Black Americans still live in these racially homogeneous communities is the key mechanism for, the, uh, for how racialized social constraint gets sort of uh, 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 both socialized and enforced 
within the black community. And the black church is, is, is one good example of this, right? Because it is the black church, right? It is a black space, right? And within these black spaces are where the norms can most effectively be both socialized and enforced, right? And the black church as an institution in particular has the, uh, the kind of structure that sort of it very much enables that. Uh, you know, going forward, and Cheryl can definitely speak on this uh, better than I could, uh, on the, the sort of emergence of, of Black social media spaces and their role in sort of enforcing uh, 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 racialized social constraints. Dr. Lerner, would you like to talk a little about that? Yeah. So, you know, oh, this is one of my favorite parts of the book is this section that we write on Twitter and Black Twitter, because I think uh, it is an interesting thing to think about one innovation and, and how that interacts with these longstanding practices and the way that communities like African-Americans are able to leverage this as other spaces to engage in the same kind of politics that they've been doing before. Um, and so Twitter um, is a social media platform like many that are out there. And, you know, there's been lots of discussions around this idea of Black Twitter, that there are a lot of Twitter users that are African-American and that there is a space on Twitter where political discussion, talking of pop culture, various things are going on amongst many of the people in that space and that it is very Black. Like it is very in line with the expectations of the Black community. It is uh, one which conversations around who's doing what and is it in line with what is expected from the group is something that happens there. And it's happening in a space not where it's like twitter.com backslash Black, right? It's happening in the open forum of what what Twitter is, but key people and and, and certain individuals have kind of been elevated a bit in that space um, and, and are able to to highlight some of these these conversations. And so as there has been concern over time, I think about some of the declines in the brick and mortar spaces where a lot of that socialization and norm enforcement occurs, Black Twitter and other social media has emerged as another space to essentially enforce the norms and, and even sanction people who are in not in compliance. And so uh, one of the things that we talked about in the book was the instance in which Steve Harvey seemed to be um, putting himself in close proximity, literally going to the Trump Tower uh, at the time President-elect Trump um, had been elected into office after the 2016 election, and how much backlash he received as a consequence of that association. Um, And I think Steve Harvey was struck by it, but people were like, you know what's going on. You know what we do collectively as a group politically, and this is unacceptable. And I think Steve Harvey being jarred by that as much as he was is because in terms of what we know Steve Harvey as, like, I think the mainstream public sees Steve Harvey as the host of Family Feud. But for Black people, Steve Harvey has been a longtime comedian in the community. He's been on popular Black programming. He had his own TV show. He uh, was on, like, Deaf Comedy Jam. So we've known him for a very long time. And this is just not what you do. If you are somebody that in touch with the Black community or that involved with the Black community, uh, we expect better of you than to associate not only with the Republicans, but to associate with Donald Trump. Um, And uh, he ended up getting a lot of flack. He ended up having to apologize for it. Um, And at risk for him was not only a social reputational concern there, but also one financially, right? Because a lot of his money uh, and, and, and financial gains comes from Black communities who see him in in a positive light. And and he can't put that at risk. Um, Another person would be, for instance, like Kanye West is another person who ended up hearing a lot of responses from people on social media, especially on Black Twitter, with regard to his association with the Trump campaign and and an open and very direct backlash to what he was saying to the point that he kind of had to come back as well and kind of backtrack on some of the statements that he was saying, like slavery is a choice and um, being supportive of, of where Trump is positioned on particular policies and that he's a free thinking black individual um, and, and had to walk it back. So it, it really does seem that there are these new avenues 
for this intra-group politic to continue. And, and what I think is interesting about Black Twitter as well is that it's an intra-group politic that is happening within the space of the white gaze. So like white people can see it and mainstream, the mainstream public can see it, but it doesn't matter, right? Because the intergroup politic is known, it's understood, and people will call out individuals when they seem to be stepping out of line with it. And additionally, those who sacrifice at high levels are all uh, sacrifice on behalf of the norm are very revered. So someone like John Lewis, when he passed away, was heralded, right? And, and then so much commentary came out of the social media space about who he was, what he represented, and what he'd embodied because he has made the ultimate sacrifice for community over his lifetime um, and, and is seen as almost like, you know, the symbol of what what someone who's truly committed, right, to the group interests should should represent in our modern times. So it, it really is just interesting to watch and, and I enjoy engaging it. Uh, and we see even a growing space now, even on TikTok and, and Black TikTok and uh, other places. Mm-hmm. It, it is an interesting dynamic to watch. Mm-hmm. Dr. White, do you have anything to add to that? No, no, that was excellent. So uh, would it be appropriate to call this a kind of public shaming of people that go against the expectation? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I would say like, Sometimes one word is all you need. I, I, I would say, yeah, and, and I say that. I mean, like, really, it just—it just happened. Like SNL, if you saw the premiere recently, um, the musical guest on that episode, the host was Chris Rock, but the musical guest was Meg The Stallion, who is a very popular rapper um, and has a number of songs that have been popular over the last couple of summers, um, and is very popular with like the eighteen, to, especially the eighteen to thirty-four demographic. Uh, and in the midst of that performance, she calls out uh, uh, Daniel Cameron, the AG from Kentucky, who also led the uh, uh, information in the in the grand jury investigation into uh, or the grand jury uh, hearings into the Breonna Taylor case. Mm-hmm. Um, and she openly calls him out in the middle of this performance. So on wow. like national television. Wow. She is like, Daniel Cameron, you are no better than the slaves on the plantation that would sell us out to the master. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's interesting that she uses that example because that is an example that we actually bring up in the book, right? Like we talk about what happens to informants on the plantation that are talked about by Frederick Douglass when he observes what's happening to an informant who is trying to report potentially or threatening to report on a fugitive slave. She makes that association. So yeah, it it is a shaming, but it's one where she's like, I'm speaking to you because you know what the group is thinking and you know Mm -hmm. the respect of you. Yeah, I want to broaden the discussion a little bit, and I'm I'm reminded of two things. One is, um, well, what is John Stuart Mill, who every political scientist knows, and I'm sure many of our listeners know, and he was very fearful of orthodoxy and conformism. He thought this was the essentially the death of what he called the marketplace of ideas. He 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 really felt that one people should be as free as they possibly can in order to express their opinions. And the other thing it reminds me of is my time in the Soviet Union. Yes, I'm that old. And I, I <laughs> and I lived in the Soviet Union for a time and this is a nice introduction to my question because or entryway to my question because there there was a really strong orthodoxy and you could be mm-hmm. viciously punished for expressing mm, ideas that were dissonant with this orthodoxy. But there were places where people did express kind of safe spaces that we might almost call them where people did express free ideas or ideas freely. And I'm wondering if, if you have any thoughts on places where African-Americans who are um, socially constrained by this are expressing their ideas more freely, maybe out of the public gaze. I don't know. I'm just speculating here because I imagine there are people that don't, you know, they will identify with the Democratic Party, but they have other ideas and they need a safe place to express those ideas without being publicly shamed. Dr. White, you want to go first? Sure, sure. I mean, uh, as as we mentioned, I mean, uh, obviously the black church is a rather conservative institution. And so there is some openness there certainly to the expression of of conservative beliefs uh and you know the and i think it is just that the constraints are the expression of conservative beliefs within this sort of particular partisan framework right and and i'm, I'm not sure i mean in some ways one could think of this as 
a, you know, in some ways you could think of, okay, this shaming in the sense of um, the repression of, of, of minority viewpoints, right? And, and that's not necessarily a good thing, right? But at the same time, you could think of the kind of uh, the norm itself, the idea of black support for the Democratic Party is a, a very much democratically determined norm, right? It, and you can see this through polls and voting, right? Uh, now, granted, we show some evidence that shows that those things can be somewhat skewed by the, you know, the, the particular context in which they, they're discussed, right? But there is this sort of generalized uh, uh, idea of, of this is what's in the group interest. Now, there are Black Americans who disagree with this, but there are plenty, in some sense, there are plenty outlets for them outside of the Black community. Now, they they are in a kind of a kind of constrained position, right? Because if they don't have social networks outside of the Black community, they are very much constrained, right? Mm-hmm. But if they have those connections outside of the Black community, which is what we show in the book, right? That integration sort of enables this uh, embracing of these, the, the, the turning of conservatism into Republican Party support, right? Mm-hmm. We show this in the book that, that it that the kind of access to to white social networks makes them makes African Americans somewhat freer to uh, embrace the Republican Party. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see, Doctor Laird, do you have a comment about that? Yeah, no, I, I think there are there are outlets um, because obviously, I, and I think Ishmael's right in terms of the social network side of this, right? So if you are if your social ties are very dependent on uh, this norm compliance, right, then you, you are in a bit of this, you are in this constraint, right? Like, and now you have to figure out a space to, to find um, opportunities to discuss these more openly. Um, and, and I think they have, con- there's conventions that happen, right? Like, so I know uh, Corey Fields, for instance, a sociologist, he has a book called uh, Black Elephants in the Room, and he basically goes and studies Black Republicans um, at a convention that they're having to basically talk about being Black Republicans. Uh, and and uh, But at the same time, you know, there, there is some isolation, right? And that's brought up by, you know, Leah Wright-Riger's work on on Black Republicans and that there's this loneliness because of, of how the group dynamics are are designed here. Uh, so they, I think there's collectives that occur uh, and we can even see kind of more contemporarily, uh, for instance, Candace Owens' organization um, is one where I've, we've seen a lot of not only black voters in their support for, I, I'm not even sure if I would say they were serving the Republican party, they support Trump, who is the leader of the Republican party. Um, and, and that a lot of young black people have found that as an opportunity space. And, and I think social media is another outlet where potentially people would want to collect together um, and talk about these things more freely. But again, you know, it, it becomes a bit of a challenge to become more public with that discussion. Um, if you are worried about social standing, if that is a top priority for you, uh, those social, those social ties, and if you're so Social ties are homogeneous. I mean, you you could in theory have homogeneous social ties, right? So people who are of the same race um, in terms of your social network. But if those social ties are not of big priority to you, and you have conservative leanings that would lead you to support the Republican Party, um, if that is prioritized higher, for instance, then then it wouldn't be of concern, right? And and that's not going to matter. So the really is at the essential is going to be, you know, to what degree are you worried about these social connect connections? And to what degree would they be threatened by your affiliation with something that is not held in high regard by the group? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's well spoken. And I, I, I want to make sure that the listeners, and they know this, absolutely, no group of 42 million people can be homogenous in terms of their opinions. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> if you want to find black conservatives, it's not hard to find them. For a long time in our history, too. I think that that's the other thing that's always interesting. Oh, yeah. Some of them come out more publicly and say that we are the more independently minded, free thinking blacks. Yeah, that's right. There, there, there's Are, a long history of black conservatives. Like, right. and even, even on racial issues, blacks aren't 
unified, oh, yeah. not even oh, to yeah. the extent they are in, in terms of support for the Democratic Party, like with yeah. affirmative action. You know, yeah. more blacks oppose affirmative action than support the Republican Party. <laughs> Right. Is that right? That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, yeah. It, it really, in the age of the internet, you can definitely find all of the black conservatives and liberals. And it's funny because on the New Books Network, we interviewed the chairman of the Communist Party of the United States, who happens to be an African-American. So there's a great, there is a great diversity of opinion if you want to go find it. Yeah. Well, I want to I thank both of you very much for being on the show. It's an absolutely fascinating book, Steadfast Democrats, How Social Forces Shape Black Political Behavior. Let me close the interview by asking our traditional final question on the New Books Network, and that is, what are you working on now? Dr. White, why don't you go first? Oh, I'm working on a project that uh, sort of attempts to try to figure out what, um, how African-Americans use race to push them into political action beyond just the kind of Democrat, you know, support for the Democratic Party, this project would look at what makes people engage in costly political behavior uh, and trying to understand the sort of psychological antecedents of that behavior. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. Dr. Laird? Yeah, no, so I have kind of two lines of work going on. So one is uh, doing a deeper dive into the measure of linked fate and how African-Americans express their linked fate and its accessibility in their political in their mind when they're thinking about politics and who is being talked about, like basically who is the key black person of focus in these, uh, you know, media discussions around uh, race and, and do people feel connected to that? And and does it actually lead to them feeling cute in their linked fate? Uh, and the other work that I'm looking at is also on Black women. And it's a co-authored project to look at their socialization of Black women and why we then see the type of political engagement that we see them do, right? Where they're strong, committed, loyal to the Democratic Party and their willingness to kind of do high risk type of uh, participation, including protest and, and, and activism um, on behalf of issues that oftentimes may not actually prioritize them as the main figures um, who are dealing with those 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 problems. Uh, and I'm, I'm trying to kind of get into how, how we should understand that and think about it. Well, thank you very much. Uh, let me tell the listeners that today we've been talking with Ishmael White and Cheryl Laird about their book, Steadfast Democrats, How Social Forces Shape Black Political Behavior. This is part of the Princeton University Press Ideas podcast series. Dr. White and Dr. Laird, thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you for having Thank us. Thank you so much. Absolutely my pleasure. And this is Marshall Poe on the editor of the New Books Network, signing off. <laughs>